Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club Health and Medicine Forum. I'm Mark Zitter, chair of the Zetima Project, a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and your moderator for today, which is a very unusual time in our country right now. Commonwealth Club has suspended its in-person programming, but is hosting virtual events, including this one, obviously. You can learn more about our upcoming virtual events or about becoming a member by visiting commonwealthclub.org. We are grateful for the generous support of our members and donors and hope that you'll consider making a donation online or text DONATE to 415-329-4231. The Commonwealth Club is the largest and oldest public affairs forum in America. We're nonprofit, and we can really use your support. We also encourage you to like, subscribe, and share videos like this one with your friends and family. It's now my pleasure to introduce today's special guest, Dr. Vivian Lee. She is president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences, an alphabet company, and she's author of The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone. I just finished this book and I'd recommend it. Dr. Lee has been a practicing physician, a radiologist. She's been a scientist and a healthcare administrator for more than two decades. She is a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Lee also serves as a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Previously, she was dean at the University of Utah School of Medicine and CEO of University of Utah Health. Under her leadership, the program rose to prominence and was ranked first in the country among university hospitals in quality and safety. Funded by the National Institute of Health for 20 years, Dr. Lee was elected to the National Academy of Medicine and also received the gold medal for her leadership and scientific contributions by the International Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine. Last year, Modern Healthcare ranked her number 11 among the most influential people in the healthcare industry. In addition to being a Rhodes Scholar, Dr. Lee holds degrees from Harvard, the University of Oxford, and New York University. We're very pleased to welcome Dr. Vivian Lee to the Commonwealth Club. And I'm going to jump right in. Nice to have you here. And Vivian, so you've been a highly successful practicing physician, a clinical researcher, a health system CEO and now a health tech executive. So why take time off to write a book and why this book in particular? Well, thanks first of all for having me here. It's really wonderful to be able to be with you. That's a really great question. I actually felt like so many of us feel like we've heard so much about what's ailing our healthcare system. And one of the real pleasures that I had in the work that I've done in all the different roles, as you mentioned, in the healthcare arena, is a chance to really see how many impressive success stories there are, how many actual solutions there are out there to fixing our healthcare system or improving it. And I wanted to be able to share those. I wanted to be able to share many of the successes. And in the course of going around and talking with people about the work that they're doing across the country, I found that many of those solutions I could weave together and start to form um, a vision for how our healthcare system overall could really improve. And I wanted to share that. Great. Well, let's talk about a few of those successes. You know, one of the ones you mentioned early on in the book is ChenMed, which came about in an unusual way and had some unusual successes. So let's know more about that. Sure. ChenMed is a really interesting organization. It was founded uh, by Chris Chen, actually was founded by his father, and then he took it over and created ChenMed in Miami. 
And the basic idea there was that instead of the usual fee-for-service primary care practice, where every time in order for the physicians to make money, in order to run their practices, they needed to do things to patients. And that, that's really, the, as you know, the, the predominant model now in this country. Instead of, of that fee-for-service model, doing more to patients, prescribing more medications, ordering more imaging studies, uh, Chris Chen and his father and, and others, as they expanded, decided they really wanted to take a different approach completely. And they negotiated some special contracts with Medicare as part of the Medicare Advantage program. And they said, you know, instead of paying us fee-for-service, just give us a little autonomy to figure out how best to care for patients. Pay us on, say, a monthly or yearly basis for caring for a group of patients. Of course, pay us a little bit more if the patients are a little bit more complicated or sick and a little less if they're healthier. And then let us decide how to spend that money. And that's what they did. And when they did that, they actually ended up taking on some of the most complicated patients, elderly senior patients as part of the Medicare program, and found that they really needed to make investments uh, that were very different from a traditional fee-for-service model. So they set up, first of all, they knew that these patients needed more time, 30 minutes to an hour for each visit. They actually realized that they needed to be seen in person. So they set up transportation. They put in on-site pharmacy, for example. They actually realized that in order to prevent falls, investing in classes like yoga or even Tai Chi made sense. They even set up social evenings, like a, a monthly birthday party, for members just to combat some of that social isolation and loneliness. And in the end, they discovered that even though they had to invest a lot more money up front for the primary care piece, they reduced hospitalizations considerably. And so net-net, they actually saved the system a lot of money. And in their business model, if they reduced the amount of money that was spent per patient and kept them healthier, they actually netted those savings. They actually fell to their bottom line. So they created a whole new business model for primary care that really was a win-win. It was a win for the payers. It was definitely a win for them. And most importantly, it was a win for the patients, really keeping them healthier now the hospital systems. And it's still going on. Uh, if that's such a win all around, how much has it expanded or why hasn't it expanded more? Well, each of those clinics, each of those businesses like ChenMed, like Iora Health, who I also talk about, like the Caremores, Leon Medical, they are all proliferating. There are more and more of those each. I think ChenMed might have over 70 clinics now, I think, across the country. Each of them is expanding. Um, I think it's difficult, and I write a little bit about that. Uh, Rashika Fernandopoli, who founded Iora Health, actually shared some of the challenges. Some of the challenges are that you are practicing a completely different approach to medicine. So anytime you're taking the status quo and trying to flip it uh, completely upside down, there are a lot of challenges there. You have to teach a workforce to practice in a very different way. They needed new electronic medical record systems that they had to invest in, which were challenging. And then importantly, many of the investments that they make only pay off after a period of time. So they have to upfront invest in the pharmacies. They have to invest upfront in spending more time with their patients. But those don't necessarily directly translate into cost savings immediately, even if they do translate into better health outcomes early on. So it's not, it's not easy to do, but we are seeing a lot more success. And, and one of the messages that I really did want to get out was the importance for seniors or people who are working with seniors and looking for primary care physicians 
to be aware that this model is actually available out there and to be looking for it because I think it's it's definitely showing better outcomes and and is one that I think um, most patients are finding really satisfying and, and signing up for year after year. Well, it raises a key issue. You, you, really, what ChenMed did was they took a look at what a senior needs and they weren't restricted by just thinking about medical procedures. And you really raise the, the issue that so many experts think is the key to making the healthcare system work better, how we pay. You talk about fee for service or you call it uh, pay for action, I mean, paying people to do things as opposed to paying for results. And ChenMed was able to, I guess, get waivers from the government. So they were paid uh, for the results overall. They were, they, were, they were paid at least in a prepaid fashion rather than each piece of each thing they did. And I think that when providers are, are, are paid for each piece of what they do, they think about each piece, piece as opposed to thinking about what the patient needs. So this seems a better way. Now, you ran a hospital pretty recently. How much of the way the hospital was getting paid was the standard pay for action versus this prepayment? Well, I think the point that you raise, Mark, is really the critical one across all of healthcare. And the fact that there are differences between primary care and hospitals is also a really important difference. So in a system as we have now, which is really paying for action or fee for service, then we as a healthcare system, we tend to invest in things that generate fees for us. So we tend to invest, as a, as a nation, we tend to invest in operating rooms, in imaging centers and cancer centers, because those really generate fees. And so what we're actually seeing right now in the COVID crisis is some of the limitation of that reliance on a paying for action and fee-for-service system, because as soon as we had the pandemic and people were afraid to go in for those procedures, most of our hospitals that are really dependent on those actions, as I say, in the pay-for-action model, I've really suffered. And we know that, for example, just in April alone, almost one and a half million doctors and nurses were laid off. While their counterparts were trying to struggling to care for COVID patients, everyone else's hospitals, hospital beds were empty and, and clinics were empty. On the other hand, the Medicare Advantage programs, where they had this a guaranteed source of income, as Chris Chen calls it, um, a subscription-based model, they've actually been doing very well because they knew that they had that payment and they weren't living hand-to-mouth in a, in a fee-for-service model. So I think the hospitals are very different from the primary care clinics because they they do rely so much more on patients coming in and performing procedures and doing things to them. That really is the primary source of revenue. And I think that's also why it's, it's, a, it's a tougher hill to climb for us. Although even in, in that environment, we do have some great models. Our military health system, for example, those hospitals, our VA hospitals, Veterans Affairs hospitals are all based, are all paid more on a model of caring for a whole population as opposed to fee-for-service. And they've actually done very well as also during this COVID crisis. So how could you, it's, it's, this seems to be a key issue and it's interesting because the, for most patients, most individuals, they're, they're blind to this. This doesn't affect them directly in a way that they can see. They go into the doctor and they have a copay or not, or they go to the hospital or whatever it might be. But, but so many experts think this is the, the single most important issue in terms of how we can improve our healthcare system, many would say. So how can we transition from one to another? What's getting in the way of doing that? Well, you've made a couple of really, really good points. The first one is that I just want to double down on is this realization that 
actually, when it comes to healthcare costs, it's all of our problem. And I think many of us have this feeling that, well, you know, our insurance covers it. Maybe I have a copay, as you say, $25, $30, maybe. But otherwise, insurance is covering it or the government's covering it. So it's not really my problem. But in fact, as I was doing the research for my book, came to realize some some areas that we pay for are obvious. So those out-of-pocket payments are obvious. What may not be obvious is that over the last couple of decades, the share that we've been paying as employees has actually been growing. So we're actually now paying over 30% of that healthcare that we are really, that's covered by insurance by our employees, uh, by our employers. We're actually paying for out-of-pocket through co-pays and deductibles and co-insurance. Of course, so that's number one. The second is, of course, it comes out of our taxes for Medicare, Medicaid, and other federal programs. And then third, the most insidious way in which we're paying, which I think most people hardly realize at all, is that it's coming out of our wages. So if you look at the last 50 to 60 years, on average, our wages are about the same. They've been essentially flat for 50 to 60 years, even though the U.S. economy has continued to grow. That delta, the difference between what we should be making and what we're really bringing home has been completely consumed by our healthcare costs. And what I discovered when I was writing the book was even beyond taking it out of our current pay, it's actually coming out of our retirement money. So the amount of money that our employers were putting into our retirement is actually now been diminishing over the last few decades, again, mostly because of rising healthcare costs. So that's one of the reasons why this book, why I wrote this book was because I think everybody needs to realize that the costs of healthcare are everyone's problem, is everyone's problem. And it's a little bit like this, uh, this story of the surf and turf problem. This friend of mine, uh, Len Saltz from uh, Memorial Stone Kettering said, it's like healthcare is like all of us going out to dinner. Yeah. We all go out to dinner. We know we're going to split the bill. And then we're looking at the menu and think, well, we could order a cheeseburger. Or we could order a steak. Thinking, well, we're going to split the bill. We'll order the steak. And at the end of the night, we've all ordered the steak. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really, that's really healthcare in this country. So it is critical uh, to understand. And then the second question that you asked, I think, was really around how can we, how can really move from a fever service model into a, into a, a more value based kind of model or a different kind of a system? Yeah. And I think for, for that, um, it's important to realize that the fundamental economic model is one that pits hospitals and healthcare systems and doctors against insurers and government payers like Medicare and Medicaid. Because what happens is in a fee-for-service or paying-for-action model, we're essentially rewarding doctors and hospitals for doing more and more things to us, more and more procedures and tests and so on. And so what happens in that model is even though most of us as doctors don't necessarily, we're not necessarily doing more things just because we're getting paid more, but nevertheless, there is that fundamental economic incentive to do that. And so what happens is then you have the insurance companies and the government payers having to say no. They have to say, well, you're spending too much. You're ordering too many steps, uh, tests. And so they have to put in, de- they have to deny services, for example, or put in barriers like prior authorizations, which are just mounds of paperwork. So if a doctor wants to order an MRI, they have to say, 
maybe only if you fill out all this paperwork. And so they go back and forth, ordering a study, denying a study, ordering a study. And that's generating an enormous amount of waste in our system, enormous amount of bureaucracy. Uh, the U.S. spends 8% of the healthcare dollar on administrative costs compared to the OECD nations where it's 3%. And then through all this squabbling, which causes everybody a lot of pain and a lot of waste, when we can't resolve it, it falls to the patient in surprise billing or balance billing. What we need to do is to adopt models, as you started with, with ChenMed and Medicare Advantage, or with um, new value-based payment models, where both the healthcare system and the payer are both aligned. In the ChenMed model, both the insurance company and the doctors there want to achieve better health at lower costs. It's a win-win. They're not a tug of war over the dollar. They're actually working together. And so all payment models that are designed that way make a lot more sense. They make a lot more sense for us. In the primary care model, Medicare Advantage is one example. And then there are other examples in the hospital, which we could talk about, like bundle payment models or even more global budgeting, like in the military health system or in the VA. Well, we got one question recently about Kaiser Permanente. How does that relate to the model you're recommending? That's a great question. So Kaiser Permanente is an example of where both of the insurance company and the hospitals and, in fact, the physician groups are all owned by one entity. And that is a model that's often held up as a great example of how there can be better alignment instead of them all fighting with each other since they're part of one company. Um, presumably, they can work better together. And I think Kaiser has really demonstrated that, particularly in the California environment where they are able to work together and they've been much more progressive about adopting ways of practicing medicine that have taken a lot longer in other parts of the country. One great example is telemedicine. So we've seen with the COVID crisis, all of a sudden, many of the barriers to telemedicine have come down and many insurers and even Medicare are now paying for telemedicine. But leading up to COVID, we've really had, it's really taken a long time for telemedicine to become adopted because most of the payers have been unwilling to do that. In Kaiser, Kaiser was one of the earliest adopters of telemedicine and their physicians and health systems have been using chat, email, telehealth, because it just makes sense. And it overall reduced the cost of care. And so they've adopted it very early. Mm -hmm. So they have been following this model in many ways, but of course there's been challenges in expanding that model outside of California. So there have been challenges, as you know. Yes, they have been. And I think there's a, a debate about to what degree the solution is to bring the health insurer and the hospital under the same roof. Because the, the counter argument, so if you, if, you believe in, um, if you believe that the two will work together in a way that is intended to advance the health of the population, as I think Kaiser California has really demonstrated in many positive ways, then it makes a lot of sense. Um, and actually, some of the, the military health system and the VA health systems do have some of that same flavor where the payer and the, and the delivery system are under one umbrella. Others will be a little bit more skeptical about that and say, well, it's really about having market power and to be able to um, negotiate, for example, higher prices with other insurance companies who may want to use those hospitals, or there's a little bit more of a consolidation in the market feeling 
in, in some of those efforts. So I think that it's not clear, it's not clear cut that the way forward is to bring hospitals under the control of insurance companies or insurance companies under the control of hospitals, although there are some really good success stories. Well, let me turn to a couple of other interesting points you make in your book. Uh, one way to try to improve healthcare quality is uh, by increasing accountability and visibility, and that's by measuring doctors' outcomes and reporting them visibly, much in the same way we report baseball players' batting averages. I don't mean to be glib, but that's really what it is. It is harder than it sounds, but it has actually been tried and has actually had some interesting results. So why don't you tell us about, for example, the heart surgeons in New York State? One of the big lessons that I learned in this book is that uh, for the most part, physicians really are a very motivated group of people who really want to learn and get better. On the other hand, they're also, um, like all people, they're proud. And the ways in which we provide that kind of feedback, how we provide feedback, are really important in terms of determining how willing uh, people are to get that feedback. And so what I mean by that is in New York State, um, one of the early efforts to try to use public data about quality was to provide outcomes data on all of the cardiac surgeons in the state of New York and to look at their overall mortality rates. And initially, what happened when, when that, those data were put up, they were anonymized. And then a member of the media actually sued and got access so that the individual surgeons and their outcomes were, became public information. And of course, there was an enormous outcry over that. Uh, many of the surgeons, as is often the case and, and was probably true, who had poor outcomes said, well, we take care of the sickest patients and therefore you're penalizing us for caring for the, for the tough patients and the underserved, frankly. Um, that said, I think they also found that some of, the patient, some of the physicians who had the poorest outcomes were those who did fewer cases, who were working in hospitals who also had a lower volume. And so their nurses and care team members also probably had less experience. And so over time, despite all the outcry, the state actually saw significant improvements in terms of outcomes just by posting those data, mostly because I think the hospitals that had the lower volumes or the hospitals who had individual surgeons who were doing fewer cases just stopped them from doing those cases. Um, and so they directed those to, to others. There were some other unintended consequences, which are, I think, that um, at least based on some of the surveys, it's hard to know for sure, but based on some of the surveys, there was an increased unwillingness for some of the surgeons to take on some of the most complicated patients. Uh, so I think that's true. And the other lesson that we learned was that many of the patients didn't actually change their behavior at all. So where, you, where there's an argument for more transparency in the market, patients tended to go to the same cardiac surgeons regardless of how they came out on those ratings. And it was mostly because they went to wherever their cardiologist suggested that they go. They went to whichever cardiac surgeon the cardiologist recommended. And so that was another lesson that it was more important, at least in that particular case, to persuade the referring cardiologists of the validity of this data necessarily than to convince the patients. 
Yeah, I think that was part of the disappointing part that patients don't necessarily use the information the way that we might want them to. But I'm curious, you know, this was a couple of decades ago that New York started this. Uh, what did you do about physician ratings uh, at the University of, of Utah when you were there? So we learned a lot from some of these previous experiences. And the system that I inherited when I joined the University of Utah, we had already been ranked number one in quality among all the university hospital systems by University Healthcare Consortium. And so we were performing pretty well on quality. The area that we'd been focusing on just prior to my arrival was on patient satisfaction. So I'll talk briefly about that and then explain how that fed into some of our work on costs. But the patient satisfaction work was really, really inspiring. My predecessor had inherited an organization that was high-performing quality-wise, but patient satisfaction was not so strong. And so he had led the charge to say, we can only be an exceptional hospital if our patients think that we're exceptional. And so we began, this is in, in his time, um, more than a decade ago, collecting patient satisfaction data and feeding that information back to the individual physicians. And I think what was brilliant about the way in which it was done, this was before my arrival in Utah, was that initially it was done privately. It was done with support. It was done with uh, the ability to learn from others. So if you, as a physician, weren't getting such good scores, there were teams who would come and work with you, work with your staff, work with your receptionist on how to improve patient satisfaction. Maybe you had difficulty keeping on time in the clinic, so how could we help you keep on schedule? And so over time, over two or three years of doing that, physicians got better, and also we became more and more transparent in terms of sharing and individual physician scores with other physicians. Before long, it was posted in the hallways. You could see how all the doctors were performing. They could all see each other's scores. And then finally, after I joined the University of Utah, one of our surgeons had one of our surgeons had had a very interesting conversation with a friend of hers who had suggested that she Google herself online. And when she Googled herself, she discovered that there were some of those commercial physician rating companies online, and they had maybe three or four responses. It wasn't a large volume, but there was one that was particularly critical of her. And of course, with those commercial sites, you couldn't be sure that those were real patients, right? It, it could be anybody uh, writing, writing some comments about you. And so she came to us and she said, you have hundreds of real patient comments and scores on me. We should just post those online. And we thought, really? You really want all those posted online? She said, yes. You know, she's a surgeon. She's like, yes. I don't care if there's some negative ones. I want to go head to head with these commercial outfits. And so after a few months of discussing among her 1,200 colleagues, uh, we decided to do that. We actually posted the patient satisfaction scores online. But the way in which we did it was such that they would only go online. If you were a new doctor in the hospital, they wouldn't go online immediately. We would give you a chance to improve. And so by the time they went online, the vast majority of our doctors were rated above average compared to their peers in the country. In fact, for four years in a row, half of our doctors were over the 90th percentile, and a full quarter of all of our physicians, 25% of all the physicians were in the 99th percentile. 
which was unbelievable. I always had to reread those numbers when I got them each year. But that was really, really from that feedback and from that learning. And as a result, it actually drew an enormous amount of volume to our system because if you're a patient at that time and you're looking for a physician, would you rather go to a physician who has comments, some of which might be negative, but at least they're comments, or go to a physician that has no information whatsoever? So we found that we just got an enormous number of referrals to our healthcare system and our physicians actually grew to love this program. Um, and so that, that was a very important lesson for us because it shifted our hospital's way of thinking and our physician way of thinking to being much more patient-centered. We started thinking a lot more about those patient comments and we reflected a lot more on those comments. With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Well, I'm glad you brought up patient satisfaction. It's most impressive what the, the hospital did overall. Um, now, there, of course, is some argument about patient satisfaction in healthcare. Some say that we spend too much on fancy patient rooms or free parking or other things just to make patients happier. And some people say that by focusing on patient satisfaction, it could cause doctors to do things that patients want that aren't necessarily in their best interests with giving unnecessary antibiotics for a common cold is one example that's often trotted out. So how do you best use patient satisfaction to truly make healthcare work better and not only to make patients happier, sometimes to their detriment? I think that's a really, really important question, Mark. And when we were going through this process, we actually did, uh, we were very careful about the questions that we asked patients. And there's actually been some research that has done been done since then to support this. But it was very important to ask questions that were really strictly about uh, the areas that the physician could control. So we didn't actually ask about ancillary services like the food or the parking necessarily. We really asked about communication, about how, how well you could understand what your physician was saying to you, how much you felt a part of the decision-making that was happening, whether you felt respected we did have one practical question, which was about wait time, but most of the questions were really focused on the ability to communicate and feel engaged in the decision-making. And we specifically did not ask, did the doctor do everything that you asked and requested of them? Um, it's not a perfect answer because, of course, there still could be um, situations where the, the physician might feel like they, they might need to, to try to make that patient happier. But we try to avoid that as much as possible. We really did try. And we, we actually did some research after the fact and published um, a couple of papers where we actually looked at whether the physicians who had the higher scores uh, tended to order more tests or prescribe more medications and whether there was a difference before and after we launched the online component in terms of those ordering practices, and we didn't find any differences. Interestingly, one other benefit that we didn't expect was also a reduction in uh, malpractice, actually, overall on a per-patient basis. So I think that uh, for the most part, I would say that it was a really positive experience for our health system because of that patient-centeredness. I'll give you one example. We opened a new clinic 
uh, very shortly after I joined, which I think was very much informed by this notion of creating an exceptional patient experience for everybody. And so when we opened up that clinic, the, the team that was that that clinic was actually set in a community of a lot of young families. And so they implemented three initiatives there just straight out of the gate. One was that they um, put on-site childcare in the clinic, just took a little bit of waiting space and just walled it off and put some of those rubber mats on the floor and hired one child, uh, one child care professional because they recognized that so many were parents and grandparents and had to bring their kids in tow. They also decided to have um, well baby visits. So as you know, for newborns, after seven and 14 days, you have to bring your baby into the clinic to get weighed, to check for jaundice, check for yellow yellow eyes, yellow skin, for example. And that really didn't make much sense for, for most of those healthy newborns to come into clinics and waiting rooms full of kids with runny noses and so on. So we did well baby visits at the home. We had a, a nurse and a pediatrician jump in their little Prius and drive around that neighborhood. Uh, and then finally, we created a one-stop shopping women's health clinic for women uh, that took two or three hours that sort of gave women uh, uh, all of the different kind of areas of care that they needed in a, in a choreographed and, and coordinated fashion. So I think those were all really came about because I think our system was very much, much more attuned to what patients were needing as a result of these changes that we had put into place. Yeah, which is great. And I've also seen some research that malpractice lawsuits are really more about whether the patient was happy with the doctor than whether actually harm was con- was conveyed. So um, I can see why those things would match, which is great. I have a, a question for you. It's a little far afield from your book, but it's very much sort of about you, or at least based on you, because I think that something that's very impressive about you is you've had so much success as a researcher, uh, as a physician, and as a leader, uh, which all of which call on different skills. I'm sure there's some personal characteristics that are common, but they call on different skills. And we've got some questions from uh, audience members who are interested in going into medicine, and they just want to know from you, what advice do you have to new medical professionals entering the field? And is there something that you wish you had known or advice you wish you had received when you started out? Hmm. That's a great question because one of the reasons why I wrote this book was because it was the book that I wish I could have read before I went into healthcare. I think all of us who, you, you would have had the same experience when we went into medicine, we memorized the Krebs cycle again, we memorized all the nerves in the body and all the muscle. I'm not exactly sure when somebody first introduced to me the idea of how we would actually, how the business of healthcare actually works, what a CPT code was. I'm not sure when somebody ever introduced that idea to me. And I certainly really had no idea about um, why so many people were having difficulty accessing care, you know, just, just didn't really understand that at all. And so when I became the dean at the University of Utah and for the first year medical school students, actually I gave a whole series of lectures to them because I really wanted them to understand because I felt like the future of healthcare is in their hands. Actually, I had to give a talk once to the um, National Academy where I was asked to speak about the future of academic medicine. And I decided, well, let me ask my first and second year medical students because they are the future. 
And I asked them because I was thinking about when uh, when I started medical school and probably around the same time when you started medical school, what I imagined when I was going in. And I imagined it being pretty consistent over time. And so I asked these students, you know, how many of you thought that healthcare was going to change or think that healthcare is going to change much in your lifetime? And I realized that that these kids were born in the 1990s. So when they were born, Hillary Clinton was already talking about healthcare reform before they could even read the newspapers. So they are coming into healthcare really expecting it to change. Then I asked them, you know, how many of them remember life before Google? Three of them. So they're they're well versed in the technology. They're well versed in the the disruptive power of technology. Uh, they don't actually think it's disruptive. It's just how they live. And then I asked them, how many of you actually think Mark Zuckerberg is old? <laughs> and actually, most of them raised their hands. Okay, so that and and so the way in which they're coming into healthcare, expecting things to change, realizing that there are tools at their disposal that are very disruptive and that can really accelerate change, um, was is really was really a powerful uh, insight for me. And so I think that. That's not really, I'm not really answering a question about advice, but it's certainly how I think about the future in terms of what this next generation can really do for us and do for our system. You really understand some of the business of healthcare too. Uh, one of the terms you use in your book, and you elaborate a lot on it, and I'd like you to elaborate here, is co-producing healthcare. What do you mean by that, and what role do patients play in that? I love that question. Co-producing is one of my favorite terms. Uh, there's an economist from Stanford called Victor Fusk. And he introduced this idea a long time ago, actually in the late 1950s. And he talked about it in terms of the way in which the U.S. economy was transitioning from a manufacturing economy to more of a service economy. And what he said was, you know, in a manufacturing economy, basically when the manufacturer produces the object, the good, they sort of throw it over the fence to the consumer and the consumer uses it. So it's kind of a one-way street. When it comes to a service economy, we tend to want to do those things together. There's a co-production of that service. So, for example, in the public side, if you want to think about it in terms of uh, public safety, we install locks on our doors. We don't just expect, you know, um, to, to be protected in that way. Or we have um, smoke detectors. Or when it comes to education, for example, we participate in the PTA or we tutor our kids to help them with homework at night. So we co-produce education, co-produce fire safety, co-produce uh, when it comes to healthcare, I think often we tend to think of it as more like a good. We tend to think of it as doctors, like we are going to make you healthy. We are now going to do something to you. When in fact, as individuals, as normal human beings, we realize, well, actually the vast majority of health happens outside of the walls of the hospitals, outside of the walls of the clinics, and really depends on what you, Mark, ate this morning for breakfast and whether you went for a run or not and how you're sleeping at night. So this idea of co-producing health and realizing that the role of the physician or other clinicians is really about working with patients to enable them to co-produce their health is uh, it's, it's, it's a shift in the mindset. Of course, it's not true in the intensive care unit where we are predominantly producing health. Let's just be clear about that. But from the 99.99% of our lives when we're not in the intensive care units, I think it is very true. And I think the way in which some of the work that we're doing in Verily, for example, in technology sector is really very much focused on how technology can enable us to co-produce health. 
Let's let's talk a bit about that because you're now president of the health platform for Verily. That's an alphabet company and in case people don't know, part of the Google family. So all about big data and so forth. So what has uh, your focus been and how can data and analytics and digital media improve healthcare? One of the things uh, when I after I was the dean and the CEO at the University of Utah, I thought about going to become the CEO of another healthcare system. Um, and then I was really attracted to Verily. One of my mentors said, well, you know, Vivian, if you go off to another hospital, um, if you're lucky, you can have a positive effect. You and your team will have a positive effect on that community. But in the technology space, there's really the opportunity to affect and impact um, many, many more people especially people who might not ordinarily have access to healthcare. And that, that really, really appealed to me. And one example of the way in which I think the technology sector, at least my company, has been thinking, I think in many ways, sort of differently about healthcare from how, say, I would have approached it uh, coming from a healthcare background, is in a product that we have called Onduo. Onduo is a virtual diabetes clinic, and it is it includes several pieces of technology. So for people who have type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, but for this particular product, it's focused on type 2, the goal is to keep your blood sugars constant. And in order to check on that, most people have to prick their finger a few times and check, check the blood and check the level of their uh, blood sugars from that drop of blood. So the first piece of technology is a continuous glucose monitor, which is uh, sort of the size of a key fob. And this actually happens to be be a piece of technology that Verily is developing with Dexcom, another company that manufactures these. So you put this continuous glucose monitor on your arm or on your abdomen, and for about a couple of weeks, it has a little Bluetooth chip inside of it and a device to actually estimate your blood sugars. And it transmits that to your smartphone. So we also built the app. And in the app, you can actually now see 24-7 your blood sugar tracing. And you can see how everything that you do, whether it's what you eat or how you sleep or exercise, impacts your blood sugars. This is compared to the old days when you might just see one or two numbers or four or five numbers all day. Most important factor affecting your blood sugar is what you eat and drink. And typically for a diabetic, we ask diabetic patients to keep a food log. And of course, nobody keeps a food log, but we still ask them to do it. Instead, with the app, you just take pictures of your meals and snacks. And we use some of the artificial intelligence algorithms from Google to automatically recognize more than a million different snacks. So now you can actually see the pictures of what you've eaten and then how your blood sugars have responded. So that, that's sort of this aha moment for many of our patients. And we recognize that actually, Mark, if you ate a banana and I ate a banana, we're actually, our blood sugars would respond very differently. So it's a very, it's a very personalized experience. And using either from the patient directly observing it or using some AI-driven little hints, we can say, for example, you know, Vivian, that extra piece of chocolate cake that you just can never seem to resist on Wednesday night, look at every time you've eaten that, what it's done to your blood sugars. You know, we don't sort of wave your fingers at you saying you shouldn't do that, but we just show you, you know, this is what it's doing to your blood sugars. 
Um, and then on top of that, we have uh, the ability to text with a coach and video conference with a physician. And they also, of course, have AI-driven insights to offer to the patient. That's like an example of co-producing health. That's an example of where the vast majority of the care happens at the hands of the of the patient, of the individual. It's on their time. It's when it's convenient for them. It's designed around the food and what they're eating and drinking. And sure, the physician is a part of it. The coach is a part of it. But it's really about enabling the person to co-produce their own health. And, and the impact is, is remarkable, not just our version of the technology, but others. This space, generally, this space of digital health for type 2 diabetes has been really, really impressive in terms of its impact on reducing blood sugars. It's, it's as effective as any medication. That's great. So it shows what we can do with one disease anyway, overall. But interestingly, you know, to my read, pretty much all of the big tech companies have been exploring healthcare deeply for the last number of years and coming and saying we're going to disrupt healthcare. And healthcare has been very impressive in its ability to not be disrupted. But why haven't these big, talented tech companies been able to disrupt healthcare, and will they be able to do so in the future? That's a great question. I think that the the desire to disrupt as opposed to improve, I think, is a really important difference. Uh, healthcare has, as you know, is one of the most complex industries. Um, just the payment model alone being run through insurance and run through the government, various payers, layers a whole level of complexity that's not present in almost any other industry. Um, that said, I think that the perspectives that many of the technology companies are bringing are fresh. Certainly, I can't speak for all of them, but I can speak for Verily and the Alphabet family. And what what has actually surprised me the most in the two years since I've been at Verily is not so much the technology, which of course I would have expected, but what I find really remarkable are these folks in the user experience research and user experience design groups who really, they, they really embody this co-producing idea or they're just the opposite of the more paternalistic approach that many of us in traditional healthcare have, you know, where we basically think if we tell you to stop smoking, you will just stop smoking. And of course, we know that that's not really been working so well. So the way in which these apps are designed to be convenient, to be really engaging, to be personalized, you know, they sort of talk to different people in different ways. Um, I think it's just really, it's really powerful. And I think we have a lot to learn from that. So I think there's some, some ways that, uh, that technology companies or just simply consumer companies coming into healthcare um, can have a really positive impact. And then, of course, there's the whole level of how can we actually drive more insights from the data that we're able to collect that, uh, that I think is also very valuable. We're seeing a lot of collaboration, a lot of partnership between technology and healthcare, whether it's hospitals or um, for patient groups or you know, all different dimensions. And I think there's a lot of potential there, a lot of potential for that model. Well, you just finished writing this book, uh, which really talks about healthcare very broadly. You finished writing it just before the pandemic hit. So if you were revising it today, which I hate to raise because probably that's the last thing you want to think about having just finished it. But if you were revising it today, what are the biggest changes you would make in light of the pandemic? I think the pandemic has really been a 
giant stress test for our healthcare system. So most of the challenges that we face, and frankly, most of the solutions that I try to share from around the country for our healthcare system uh, really are relevant in this COVID crisis as well. So we can see that in a healthcare system that really rewards people for doing things to people and, and rewards our health system for investing in fee-generating procedures, we're not investing in primary care and we're certainly not investing in prevention and public health. And so recognizing that part of, uh, part of, of changing our mindset to expecting our healthcare system to really deliver better health is the notion that the most sensible investment in in a paying for health model would be prevention. That's the most cost-effective way of achieving health. Healthy people cost the least of anybody. So that's I think that lesson is still there. It just accelerates and it just creates an even greater urgency, the COVID crisis does, for helping us think about investing in public health and in, in primary care. Um, I also think that the payment model, again, as, uh, as we talked about at the very beginning, the models of healthcare that are being paid for in a way that is, is not fee-for-service, in a way that is more consistent and really about paying for the health of the population, those are the same health systems that are proving the most resilient during this COVID crisis. Um, and I think that uh, we're also, the, the last thing I guess I would say is that I think that the COVID crisis is really accentuating just how important it is that healthcare rise above partisanship that health uh, is a is a is a bipartisan healthcare is a bipartisan problem and that it has to have bipartisan solutions and i think we definitely see that today yeah yeah well to your prayer point about uh prepayment and so forth and to change the way we pay we've got another audience question saying what can the government do the federal government do to accelerate the adoption of more Kaiser-like prepaid uh, systems. And maybe this is a partisan issue, maybe it isn't, but uh, what's what should be the role of the federal government in your opinion? Well, the federal government is starting to do some things, I think, that are very promising in terms of, for example, paying for um, telehealth. Telehealth has been available for many years now. Uh, when I was a Actually, when I was in training, teleradiology was already possible. You could already transmit images over the Internet and we could read MRIs from Michigan or from California, even though we were in New York. Although at the time, we had to get licensed in each of those states and fill out an enormous amount of paperwork. And you know, it was incredibly inefficient and wasteful. Those barriers have been taken down, as you know, and also issues of reimbursing for telehealth. Those Most of those barriers have come down during the COVID crisis. So I think um, many of the changes that have been taking place are could lead themselves to uh, better, better health care that could be more efficient. Um, some of these remote sensors, for example, um, that go along with telehealth so that people can care for themselves in the home environment. I think those are really positive developments. I think more could be done in terms of moving our payment model. Our hospitals right now are really suffering. Uh, they were already living on very thin margins. I think the average operating margin for a hospital was around 2%, 2 to 3% in the last year or two. And so that creates a really difficult environment for our people to be willing to try new kinds of payment. Uh, when your margin is so thin, you're pretty risk averse for, for justifiable reasons. But now in 
in an environment where the government is being asked to provide significant subsidies and to help support hospitals uh, in this difficult time, it is an opportunity for um, for some of the models of payment to be adjusted. And I think that the hospitals are more open to that now. We've already been hearing um, some of that in our own in our some of our trade discussions about how some of the both the government payers as well as the commercial payers are exploring um, moving more quickly to, if not global payment models, sort of steps towards new payment models that uh, that are in line with what we're talking about. So the pandemic may be accelerating some of these things and and forcing people to rethink a few things. One of the things that I've read about being rethought is the traditional connection in America, of at least of, of working age adults, of their health insurance to their employers, which isn't true in most countries. So I guess a question is, uh, you, you argue in your book, employers should play a more substantial role in changing healthcare. Do you think we'd be better off uh, divorcing uh, healthcare insurance from employment? Uh, and if not, what do you think employers should do to try to improve the healthcare system since they don't deliver any care themselves? I think that's really a very important question for our country. And of course, it's a it's an issue that has been uh, already debated quite a lot in the political uh, arena. I think one of the big arguments that I'm trying to make in this book is that it's not who pays, but it's what they pay for. So on the one hand, if it's continues to be the model that we have now where employers are paying the healthcare bills for over half of all Americans, then the employers, what they are paying for needs to be better health and better outcomes as opposed to just paying for more action. If we were to modify that model so that let's say the employers paid a tax and now the government ran that healthcare or, or another entity, probably the government ran that entity, for example, in the Medicare for all or Medicaid for all model, then I would say the same thing is true for the government. Medicare, as we talked about in the beginning, is primarily a fee-for-service business. So regardless of whether it's the employers or the government paying, it's not who pays but what they are paying for that make, that matters the most. And so what I try to talk about uh, when I um, talk about the employers is that because they are the next biggest uh, group of, of people who are paying for healthcare, they have enormous market power that's really being untapped now. And unless that changes, employers really do have the opportunity to step up and use some of that market power to influence the care that their employees get. So I, I tell the story of these five employers in Seattle that include Costco's and Nordstrom's and Starbucks. And they banded together. They were unhappy with the rising costs of care for their employees. And they went to one of the systems that was providing that care, Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle. And they said, look, unless you guys get your act together, we're going to take our business somewhere else. And that was actually a very powerful statement because they had a lot of employees in the Seattle area. And so Virginia Mason paid a lot of attention. And they said, well, you know what, we're going to, we're going to put some demands on you, a performance specs. We're going to say, you know what, if we send our employees to you, we want 100% customer satisfaction. We want you to only do what works. We don't want you to do unnecessary back surgery for back pain when maybe physical therapy would be enough. We want you to really pay attention to getting our employees back to work. That's the most important thing to us is that they get back to work. And you don't seem to care about that, but you need to now. And then 
We also want to know how much things are going to cost, and we want those costs to be consistent from, from employee to employee. They put these demands on the Virginia Mason Medical Center, and they actually got their way. And it actually made the medical center better, and it also got them better health care and better, better outcomes for their employees. And, and that's, that's an example that, that could spread across this country. Many of the largest employers are doing that, and I think many of the smaller employers could just piggyback on what's already happening. In a sense, it's co-producing healthcare at a, at a different level at the, at the, that's right. at the organization. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 You know, in your book, you point out the astonishing lack of price transparency in healthcare, or it's often impossible to find the price of anything until you've received that service and you don't have much choice about it. So how realistically, how would greater price transparency affect healthcare, and why don't we have more of it right now? That's such an important question. It's important, I think, to distinguish price transparency at two different levels, uh, because even though both levels right now, it's, it's missing. But I'd like to distinguish between price transparency for the consumer, for the individual patient, in terms of what they need to pay, and then price transparency on a B2B basis in terms of, for example, uh, what a commercial insurer, what an employer what Medicare or Medicaid will have to pay for healthcare, for medications, for medical devices, and so on. Because there's sort of two levels at which this business happens. There's many more probably, but two major levels. For individuals, it's really hard to know what, uh, what individuals are going to have to pay because there's so much variation across all of our health plans. So when I was at the University of Utah, we went through this process by which where we actually try to fully understand what it cost us to run the business. So, and I can spend more time talking about that, but just suffice to say that it's pretty remarkable, but in healthcare, unlike any other industry, we don't actually know. Most of us don't know how much it costs to do a cataract procedure or replace a knee or care for a patient with pneumonia. We know how much we're going to charge you, but we don't necessarily know how much it actually cost us to, run, to, to, to do the business, the cost of services or the cost of goods sold. We spent a lot of time working on that. And after we solved that, we actually figured that out and we shared that with our doctors. It was really eye-opening and it helped us reduce costs. We then turned naturally to trying to figure out how can we let our patients know how much it's going to cost them? We, we were, as you can see from our work with patient satisfaction, we were really all about transparency. Patients were already coming to our websites, looking up patient uh, doctor scores. And we said, well, we should really provide them information about the cost. And it was almost impossible for us to do it. You can actually find the website now. It's still up, the University of Utah's uh, price transparency website. We put up maybe when we started 100 different common procedures. And the reason why we couldn't do it was because we had no idea what each of the individual health plans were offering. The $25 copay here or the 10% coinsurance, or you maybe have a $750 deductible first before your coinsurance kicks in. Every, every individual has a different plan. Every plan has multiple different flavors. And it was impossible for us to, to provide that information, even when we wanted to. So one of the arguments that I try to make is that we really should standardize health plans. It doesn't have to be one size fits all, but we don't need 
one different plan for practically every different person in this country. And standardizing it would actually help us as consumers be able to shop. We could actually compare this version of the plan with that version of, you know, with with the United plan compared to a Cigna plan, compared to a Humana, compared to a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, if they actually were consistent. So that's one, one level. And then the other level is just simply that there also should be consistency of services that hospitals negotiate with employers or negotiate with insurers, most often the insurance companies directly. And there, again, there's all kinds of variation. And what one hospital might call an appendectomy or, let's say, a brain MRI, another hospital might call a brain MRI with an MR angiography with something else. And so it's very difficult at that level for good negotiation uh, to really happen to to try to manage costs as well. Because again, there, the services also aren't standard. So there's a real need in healthcare for more standards, for more standardization, so that there can be more effective negotiation and more meaningful price transparency. There's no point in having transparency when you're comparing apples to oranges. You need to first get all apples and then you can have the price transparency. Yeah, and especially in our pay for action uh, system, this highlights the problem, whereas a, a global budgeting system would probably make it, if not go away, would make it much less profound. Uh, I mean, there's so many other things I'd love to ask you about. Your book has so many suggestions. At the end of each chapter, you've got suggestions for providers, patients, policymakers, payers, everybody, just to show it easily. But we're, we only have time for one more question. So I'm going to ask it to you right now, with all the strategies that your book has in it, if you could influence the federal government to make one change right now, what would you recommend? Mm, the one strategy, well, I'd have to, I'm going to do one and a half. The, the one strategy that I'd recommend, I, I still have to go to the fundamental argument of the book, which is that we have to accelerate the change in the way in which we pay for healthcare. And we need to set a deadline and we need to be completely uh, clear that that deadline is going to be when that change actually happens so that the whole industry can anticipate that and prepare for that and move that to, to, towards that deadline successfully. The half change that I'd like to add is that I, I feel like in our government, we have a Department of Health and Human Services, which functions in large part like a giant payer. It's like a giant benefits manager. And what I would love for our government to have instead is a Department of Health and Readiness, where we have a focus not only on paying for health care, and, and of course, which is important, but also on preparing and preventing so that we won't get ourselves into this kind of pandemic crisis and be re- always reactive. I'd love us to be much more prepared and proactive. Um, and so if we had a Department of Health and Readiness that was now administering this new payment model of healthcare and also investing in public health, then I would be really satisfied. Great. Well, thank you for that. We're going to have to leave it at that just in terms of time. I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Vivian Lee, author of The Long Fix. And we encourage you to order a copy of the book through your local independent bookstore. Also like to express our appreciation to all of you, our viewers, joining us online Commonwealth Club has a wide range of programs. You can go to commonwealthclub.org for more information. I'm Mark Sitter, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.